Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. G'day, Nina. How are you? Thanks, Andrew. How are you? <laughs> you feeling stressed today? No, of course not. Yeah. <laughs> I think you are. Oh, we've been driving around seeing clients today and we're both... Hi to Adam, Adam and the team, Hi. by the way. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, boy, are we stressed today. Let's jump into it because we sort of have a big day and let's, yeah, let's talk about what is the latest news. So our first case today is... Age discrimination. Age discrimination. Yeah, so this one was... I, I cannot believe that the facts in this case. It's so funny that someone would do this. But essentially you had a chief accounting officer for NUR shipping he was 68 years old at the time and over a six-month period... i just say not old. <laughs> not old. <laughs> over a six-month period engaged in gross age discrimination. You know, they said the mandatory retirement age is 65, forced him to set down a his own retirement age so that Certainly. his job, yeah, would be replaced by a young employee and then started the younger employee while he was employed there, then said, we're going to end your employment and put you on a contract role. Like, clear, clear, gross, indirect and direct discrimination. And he ended up accepting the repudiation and bringing a claim for damages, economic loss and for the psychological injury that he got as a result. And the first instance, the judge said, clearly age discrimination. But only 20 grand for, general, yeah, for general damages. They, the judge decided on their own to challenge the medical evidence even though the other side had it. <laughs> like, no right to do so. And so on appeal... Respectfully, Your Honour. Yeah. <laughs> You're starting to no, like it was, <laughs> And then on appeal, it got increased to $90,000 and $142,000 in economic loss. So can I just... There's really Richardson Oracle, which is the case that connected any form of discrimination, but sexual discrimination in that case or harassment, to align it with the tariffs that sit for damages in the common law. And we keep hearing people saying discrimination, oh, there's not much, not big general damages, and that's for pain, suffering and loss of memory, for the impact it has on a person's feeling and life. And here you've got somebody towards the end of their working life on any basis, so probably at the best two to three more years of employment left in the person, getting $90,000 general damages. Imagine if this was a 40-year-old person who was discriminated based on gender, for instance, or, mm. or in Victoria and the way they look, for instance, in yeah. Victoria. The general damages would be so significant and the economic damages would be off the chart. Yeah. So, look, a really good case to remind people, you can't set rules around a protected attribute. You can't say we'll only employ 10 women out of every 50 people. No. You can't say that people are overweight, we won't employ them. We can't set all those sort of things that are part of it. We can't say, look, if you've got a mental health issue, we won't employ you. But it's it's also not just that overt situation. Like most people know in common sense not to do those stupid things. But it's also the indirect discrimination. So having an employee who you favour because of an attribute and treating them differently is also going to be captured. And I think it's those nuanced situations that people really need to look out for. Yeah. Look, I'm going to jump into the next case, which is Comcare and Hewitt, which is a workers' comp case. And we were chatting before we came on today in the alleged green room. We are chatting today. What oh, a the white room. Yeah, the white room. <laughs> it's the first bit of sun we've seen in a month. What a complex set of facts it was. Because oh. Ms Hewitt was injured in 2005, then suffered two or three... Um, 2009 and 2013. Yeah, incidents, which were really exacerbations of the prior injury. For things like just bending, coughing. coughing, bending over, picking yeah. up. 2018, she made a claim. 
and the insurer and the employer, the lights must have gone on at that stage and said, hmm, this person's been compensable now for 13 years. I wonder if it's in relation to the injury. And, of course, it was part of a degenerative course in the woman, and so her claim was rejected. Uh, the reason I'm telling you this case is I think Kim keeps saying that when someone has been off work for more than a year or six months, you've got to start looking at the two tests. What caused the injury? Yeah. And is the injury still causative of the lack of capacity the person now has? Because they're the two tests. Number one is causation. Was work a substantial cause of the injury? And is the injury the reason for incapacity? Because workers' comp deals with incapacity. So the things you look at in that are obviously a person not telling the truth. You're not going to have a lot of success around that most of the time. But what happens in all of this, and I'm a living example of it, is your body deteriorates. And, and Kim it, said from 40, it's automatic for everyone. Yeah. It was so depressing. Yeah, it is. Well, that was, Kim said that when she was 39. But <laughs> the truth is that you do, and spines particularly degenerate. Mm. Okay? And the fact that you've injured a spine, which makes it more vulnerable to degeneration, is not causative of that degeneration. And this was a case where the person's age and spine came together and started having their own sets of symptoms. Yep. So can you just do this when you're looking at long-standing illness or injury, don't accept it. Go back and ask the question. And remember in Victoria, you we'll can get go... Get assessed. Yeah, in Victoria... You're not saying just refuse outright. No, in Victoria yeah. 103, you can actually send the person out to get assessed yeah. as an employee. You can't do that in any other state or territory. But go back to the insurer because the insurer, it's costing the insurer a bomb and say, look, can we just see what is the underlying issue with this person and if it's the injury that's caused it. But the insurer won't do it until it blows up, okay? You have to drive that process. But please don't sit on long-term injuries yeah. because they will keep injuring themselves, which re-kicks up the premium period, and then you have another three years liability. This woman's injury in Victoria for a large employer because every now and again she'd go to a physio, go to this, re-triggers the statistical case estimate, which means it's a full claim. She's probably worth five to 600000 every time wow. she pinches herself. Every for, time? For, for coughing. For coughing, okay? So I just, wow. you've got my point, I think, at this stage, which is don't accept long-term injuries, go back and check it. Redeployment. Now, this is a great case, isn't it? Yeah. And can I say it's a great case because we act for a world of startups and scale-up businesses. So we act for people who are right in this space that work across the world yeah, flexibly. Exactly. But talk about the facts for a bit because we'll then talk about what the law is because the law about redeploying someone is not what most people think. Yeah, so this was a restructure for an Australian business where they were actually going to outsource to overseas roles in India, I believe it was. And as part of their consultation, they did like I think a virtual meeting with everyone and said we're going to be making people redundant. Next day, sent a group email to all the people who were being made redundant and BCC'd them all. That was it. Yeah, so I think the consultation process was poor. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. The court was absolutely scathing and said, look, it was perfunctory at best. Yeah. I don't even think oh, it means that. Can you say that word twice? Can I say perfunctory again? No. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, basically they didn't even consider redeployment opportunities. Now let's get let's cut yeah. to the heart. In redeployment, it is to a role anywhere within the business. Yeah. So what we normally do when you go to redeploy someone is look at the side of the business and say, look, does the job require to be done by anyone at all? That's the test. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, well, that's one test. The next test is to look at the business as a whole and say, in this business, does the job require to be done by anyone at all or not? Now, here is a case where, yes, it did, but in truth the business, it was cheaper to outsource it to India. Yep. But this person was a person who could quite easily have moved to take They it. said they were happy to move to and take, take the, the lower paid role. Yeah. And it was never even offered to them. Yeah. So big lesson here is as you're a larger organisation, like you're an organisation like us that has several sites, Nina wants to get rid of me, and she does, I can tell you that. And she says, no, sorry, Andrew, you've got to get out of here. You're gone. You're too expensive. I'm not. But there's actually the same role sitting in Sydney, and that's not offered to me. Nina's in a lot of strife, okay? Yeah, if I like can make that decision. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait for that day, can you? Andrew, we need to have a conversation. <laughs> All right, so let's go on to the next the next case, okay? No, this uh, is the new changes to like, oh, the high um, yeah. Can I just say, this is a pretty, we act for a number a of labour. Long time coming. Yeah, a long time coming. When we deal with labour hire at the moment, because there's only four states that do have legislation, I think it's four, isn't it? That have, yeah, I believe so. That, and the regulation is not identical across the states. <laughs> We're dealing with people who deal with relatively low margin, high volume work, an enormous amount of different paper compliance wherever they are, and yeah. reapplying, reapplying wherever you are. So that doesn't sound like much if you're not a labour hire provider, but that is a real cost of doing business in Australia. And what the Albanese government has come in and said, okay, we want to make this federal, we want to have one system, mm -hmm. but then they've taken, as they always do as a labour government, the extra step of criminalising behaviour, not making it just a civil penalty issue. Yeah, so they're thinking about introducing four different types of criminal penalties. One for host employer if they recklessly and knowingly engage an unlicensed labour hire operator and actually are considering making the host employer be liable for any underpayments to do with the unlicensed labour hire provider. And can I say, this is straight out of the agricultural industry, which mm -hmm. has been terrible, if it's okay. And, and remember, labour hire legislation really came in for two reasons. One, the whole of the agricultural industry had scams set up, overnight labour hire schemes. Mm -hmm. And the second was, is that there was a clear differentiation in pay for labour hire to actual employees and what was happening is the bad labour hirers were actually bringing people in well under price, yeah, under reward price. That will all change now with the new changes where yeah. it's pay parity as yeah. well. So you can see that what the Albanese government's doing is they're really doing a bit of a pincer movement here. Yeah, they're saying for labour hire must be at a parity rate mm -hmm. and secondly they're saying we've only talked part of the criminalisation at the moment. There's the other two parts. What were they? Yeah, so operating without a licence, obviously, yeah. and having a shadow director, so pretending it's not you're not actually controlling the labour hire side. Yeah, okay. So, look, if the labor, our labour hire clients out there, there's some pretty simple stuff that Nani can pull together for you and show you what it means. Overwhelmingly, this is a good thing because it shifts the risk from the labour hire provider to the host. Yeah. So labour hire provider doing the right thing wouldn't have much to worry no about. No risk really. at all. Labor hire competitor doing the wrong thing. It means when you go to speak to the host to sell your labor, you can say, well, look, you have no risk with us, but you may elsewhere. So for the good practitioners, this is a real opportunity. Yeah. And licenses will be only on a 12 month basis. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's jump. I think we're now going to our major topic, aren't we? No, there's a safety case. There's a safety case. <laughs> well, there you go. It's almost like I haven't read the script today, isn't it? Let's go to our safety case. Yeah, so... It is Mount Owen. I know this case. It's all right. Okay. It's a common law case. <laughs> and basically an employee of, 
think what was the other business name? Titan yeah. was getting a sample of hydraulic oil from a what was it? A bulldozer while they were live testing and got significantly injured, had completely changed his life, and it wasn't on Mount Owen site. And so he brought a common law claim for liability. Interestingly, they found 6% of it could be apportioned to his negligence in yes. doing that, but found the host employee was vicariously liable. So can I just stop there just so you understand? Prior to contributing negligence acts, you couldn't apportion liability. It was all or nothing legislation. So every state and territory has contributing negligence legislation, and it's different from safety law in that you award what a total yep. cost liability is. You take out that for which the person is personally liable, and then you apportion the remainder between those people whose actions caused it. And so what the liability almost all end up on the host at the end, isn't it? Yeah, because the host is vicariously liable for the 60% part and then 40% part they split yeah. with the worker's employer for not complying their duty of care towards the worker. I know, and their defence was we couldn't actually do what we should do because the host wouldn't let us. Well, yeah, that was the worker, and the, um, so the employer, and that succeeded. Yeah which would not have succeeded under safety law. Right. So if we step back from that, there's a couple of things. See, common law, one of the things is common law, everybody can be liable. Yeah. Safety law, everybody can be liable. Mm -hmm. Common law, there is one set of damages which look at three major elements, general damages, pain, suffering, loss of memory, loss of lifestyle, economic past and future, medical and life expenses. And there's some other smaller things around care and care as well. Okay. But you award the whole amount, then you share it out. Under safety law, everyone is liable for the full amount under law, mm. okay? Under common law, you can exclude liability through contracts and other behaviours. Yeah, that's why people try to under it. Under safety law, safety contracts law. don't matter. Yeah. It is the actions a person took against safety. Mm -hmm. So you can't exclude it by saying they're not our responsibilities. And increasingly, you will not be able to provide indemnities if the indemnities falls foul of the new anti-indemnity legislation that exists. So I just thought I'd put that out there. They're the real differences. Now the main topic? Yes, now the main topic. Main, now the main topic. So there we are. Okay. The main topics are small. <laughs> Austin Health and Secos is a, well, it's actually Secos and Austin Health. It's the other way around. Talk us through it. Yeah, so I think we've actually talked about this case before, but it involved a manager at Austin Health who discovered she was significantly underpaid in comparison to the 10. They were still managers beneath her who reported to her. I think one of them got paid at least $41,000 more than her. And she raised this with Austin Health, continually tried to negotiate, uh, didn't just expect to do it. She actually, you know, took the time to say, look, this is what I've done. This is what I bring to the organisation. Can you get a pay rise? And they just kept rebuffing her and saying, oh, you know, for all these certain reasons, you can't. But clearly the underlying reason was discrimination. Yeah. So, look, the case is interesting, but what's probably most interesting about this case, and actually the facts are, are very common throughout professional mm -hmm. services as well. In professional services, you find even worse reasons. I'll use Nina and I as an example. Nina and I are doing the same function. Nina's of a marrying age and of a child, a child age, okay? So, and so... Like you have a child. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. have a child, yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm just trying to be polite, okay? And so some employers would go, you know, Nina's about to become a principal. We won't actually make her a principal because... She, oh, yeah. Yeah, she'll go off on maternity leave and then she'll have a child and, you know, and then she won't be able to mark and there'll be a million other reasons why. Some of that, sometimes that's a thoughtful process, a deliberate process, but more commonly it's 
not a thoughtful process. It's one of perception. And when we talk about discrimination, we talk about what's called a characteristic of discrimination. So the protected attribute is gender, age, sex, sex all those things. And I, as the decision maker, have a narrative that sits around that, which is the women at 30 always have children. That's called a characteristic of an attribute. And in Australian society, it's incredibly common to have narratives or these stories around particular, yeah. like Andrew's too old to be a managing principal, stop it, man. No, we just stop it. All right. So age in Australia is seen as infirmity. Age throughout the Asian world is seen as experience. Mm. Okay, do you see? They're both characteristics because neither of them are necessarily true. Yeah. Because you look at each individual as they come. So what I want you to be wary of in decision-making is this. You are faced with the circumstances where there's an obvious disparity that exists, okay? What I want you to do is to take it as said there's something wrong and then to interrogate back against it and be and say to yourself, look, this could be in my brain. So in fairness terms, is the work Nina doing the same as the work Andrew's doing? Yeah. All right, well, then why, why, would I pay, why wouldn't I promote Nina and promote Andrew? Or, in my terms, why would I say Andrew is not a successful managing principal just because of his age? Yeah. Okay, so this case goes one step further than all of that, okay, because this is the first time a court in Australia has acknowledged an underlying psychological feature which is notorious in HR and given birth to it as an actual proper argument. Remember, in discrimination law, you don't have to intend to discriminate. No. You just discriminate. But discrimination commonly occurs through unconscious bias too often in professional services through deliberate and conscious bias. But throughout the world, if I look at some of the lessons I learned from my parents, which were born from a discriminatory view, they still reside inside me, you know, like people taking sick leave and I think they're weak sort of thing. That comes from my Protestant upbringing. I'm not like that, man. But it's still there in my brain. The beauty of the court decision is it puts front and centre unconscious bias. Yeah, it says that it's a real thing. It can be age. It can be what a person looks like. It can be a whole range. Remember in Victoria, what you look like is a protected attribute, physical appearance. And you'll go into some firms and you'll say, this is like a model show. Well, they've clearly been working, hopefully, with unconscious bias, but they're actually choosing people by what they look like. You can't do that. And you can't say to someone who doesn't look like that, oh, look, I don't think you're as good, when, in fact, the evidence is to the contrary. Yeah. You've got to remember to reverse onus as well. So you... You, what you said, like test your decision making. Is there objective evidence that is the, supports the reason why you're taking it? Yeah, and if remember, not, then just remember there are not just three or four protected attributes, 16 of them to think about. So yeah. keep going back, and whenever you see a disparity that exists, please test it. I know we've spent a bit of time, but it's why we made this the topic of this week because for me, I think it is the thing that I've seen most commonly in my professional life as a managing principal and as a head of workplace group, we're sitting there and we're having an interview with somebody and I'll get a comment like, look, I'm not quite sure she's ready for this. And I'll yeah. go, and I'll go. Mm. Or the, the interviewer will ask, you know, oh, so what are your plans for the next couple of years? Yeah. Like clearly targeted at something. Yeah, yeah. So that we're talking about gender, sex, and yeah. those sort of things. But I've also seen more recently times where, those same decisions have been held with people who are older and saying, look, can you talk about your intention over the next two or three years? And it's to say to you, you're too old to be here, so what are you going to do? Mm. Whereas 
we just have to look at what is the performance. Yeah. We have to stay with what is good. All right, well, let's move on. That's that's a bit lecturing. I'm sorry, we don't normally lecture, but I think it is an area of real growth in litigation. And now that they've grabbed a piece of language that's commonly used in HR, it will be one that will be captured by unions and yeah. plaintiff litigators, and it's pretty hard to defend against because it's unconscious. Well, I think they're definitely going to use it with all the new sexual harassment changes and the hostile work environment because it's much harder to, like you said, prove... That's right. If you see something that's wrong and it can be called unconscious bias, you're through the door. Whereas once most people thought I had to prove the person wanted to do it, which was never the test, but now it's very clear you don't have to. Anyway, we better move on because we're going to run out of time. Let's go to the problem. All right. Unctuous alibis. Unctuous. This was for you. I put this one. I know. I I (laughs) realise. Is a dating website company. It hired naval gazers, <laughs> IT. It's late last night when they did <laughs> To develop an AI date matching service built on client profiles and a questionnaire. At a project management meeting between Sybil, CEO of UA, the sales managers of NG, Jeannie and Travis, an AI specialist from the University of Bland. Travis, Travis, Bland. Bland. Bland doesn't have a university. I had to choose one that wouldn't serve us. The proposal was thrashed out. UOB were part of a loose association bid with NG for the UA work. They were not formally a joint venture. What a confusing fact, Andrew. Oh, no. Travis looked like a child, although he was 23 and off the charts smart. Most people thought he was 13 and he dressed like a teenager. Hey, like you. The UOB had received several <laughs> complaints from Travis. <laughs> UOB had failed to explain Travis's skill and competence, and he had been subjected to unreasonable and hurtful questioning of his age, capability, and maturity. His mental health was now precarious. At the project meeting, Sybil smiled gently at Travis and asked if he could follow everything they were saying. She inquired who he reports to and what was their experience. When Travis said he headed the team, she chuckled and said, what she later described as tongue-in-cheek, surely not. Ginny laughed with her. Ginny said, we can do all the coding and IT engineering, but Travis, who are you going to do use to do the AI work. Travis was struggling to breathe and was close to tears. He was naturally recognised as an AI designer and builder of unique AI solutions. Anthony Albanese had presented him with a national award for AI Rising Star only two months prior and there was a full page spread in the Ballarat Courier two days later. Everyone reads the Ballarat Courier. Okay. (laughs) He looked at them and asked, have you read my CV? Do you know who I am? Sybil said, yes, but this is a big risk for us and we need to know that the UOB has the maturity and experience to undertake this work. Travis, you don't fill either of us with that confidence. Travis left. He drove back to the UOB, suffered a panic attack on the way and swerved into a tree off the road and was seriously injured. He suffered head injuries that will prevent him from ever working again. There is no doubt that both Sybil and Jeannie meant no harm and were unaware their comments were drawn from his childlike features and appearance. They were unaware of that. We just did Austin Health. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay, would Travis have a discrimination claim? Yeah. Yes, is the answer to that. If so, against who? Well, because it's not sexual harassment, then it can only between be between employer and employee. If it was sexual harassment, it could be against a contractor, okay, because there is an exception that exists there. So, right? Yeah, I'm not sure I'm making that up, but I'm pretty sure that's right. But the bottom line is the only organisation and individuals that, that could be liable here are his own business, oh. University of Bilan, and whoever were his bosses, okay? That seems weird that a contractor would just, like, 
discriminate against me. No, look, it's one of the reasons in our policy and the processes we have that when we take people out the client dinners or we place someone in a client, we've got to provide you with a safe place to work away from any discriminatory behaviour and we have to shield you from it because they don't have a liability under discrimination law. They have other liability, but they don't have it. We do. Yes. Well, we have them safe laws. Yeah. Okay. What are the protected attributes? So what are there's two two obvious ones there, which is age and general appearance. Yeah, general appearance, even in Victoria. Yeah. Okay. But only in Victoria. That's true. If the matter, the land, no one intended, no, still no, liable, would this, what would this claim be worth? Can I just say to you, this claim in general damages term is a massive claim, okay? Because they're putting a guy out there with a knowledge of the manner in which he's been yeah. treated and providing those. Because he's complained to them, yeah. Yeah. So they're on notice of it. So I think they've got a general damages somewhere between 90 to 150. An economic loss of even more. Oh, an so economic loss of Korea. two or three million. Okay. Yeah. So the liability is all with them. And in general, can I just say in general protections claim, because there's no contractor relationship here to go against Genie's business, sorry, against Genie or the other, there's not a contractor relationship. At this stage, no, there's not a cause of action in general general protections either because there are two provisions around general protections which could get you through the door but they're much more about not protected attributes in this sense, not discrimination, they're much more about economic failings. Yeah, and there's not really a claim that he could make against his employer. No. Okay, so there you go. Oh, no, the general protections against his claim he could make is the discrimination. But they haven't discriminated against him. His employer hasn't No, no, they've him. placed him in a position in breach of discrimination legislation. So they, they know they'd have a claim in adverse action. Oh, okay. It's a workplace right and it's also a safety workplace right. They've placed him in a position which is unsafe. He's raised the, the lack of safety. He raised the complaint, but they haven't taken adverse action against him. No, by, by continuing to require him to undertake work they have without putting him in control. He's raised the safety complaint. Oh, anyway, so I don't know if he would win on that. They, they would, yeah, I question he, that. He'd, he'd win. Okay, <laughs> but we disagree on that. So... I think we're sending Nina off Morris Blackburn tomorrow to be re-educated. No, would Travis have a common law claim? Who against? Who would be responsible? And the answer is he'd have against them all. Everyone, yeah. yeah. And his claim is probably because there's a, in most jurisdictions, there's a limit on general damages, but he would have close to the ceiling on general damages wherever it is. Despite Oracle and Richardson saying the tariff is like general damages, that's actually not what's happened. So the general damages claim here would be closer to $300,000. And the economic and medical claim would again be bigger because the common law courts look at it slightly different to discrimination law. This is a $3 million claim. It's a massive claim. So in terms of division, would it be like 80% civil and genie and 20% Well, I think they have real trouble identifying which one gets what, but I reckon it'd be split evenly between the group. But the employer... The employer probably have a higher level, probably 50 to 60% the employer. Even though they did less, than the other people who were actually no, because they that. kept putting them in, it kept putting them in the place of harm. Oh no, I agree with that. So they agree that they should have harm liability. But surely the people's actions who directly caused him to stress would have more no. of a liability. No, no, the person who placed him in harm's way always gets the highest Starts level of contribution. Sometimes. <laughs> well, it does, and that's part of the reason we're having this discussion. So next one, would Travis have a workers' compensation claim? Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Undeniably. Undeniably, and he'd have both. He'd have the psychological yeah. claim if he brought it beforehand. And He's got the physical and psychological sequelae as well afterwards. Mm. Did any person in the company breach safety law responsibilities? And if so, who is the breach? Can I just say everyone here yeah. has a bit of risk, but the, the employer has massive risk. They were well aware of 
the psychological hazards and continue to ignore them. Yeah, and the others had a third party risk, the section 23, mm. three, yeah, no, not 26, not the control, we've done this before. No, the section, the section 23 risk, which is equivalent in other states. So it's where you do something which could affect somebody else. And remember, that goes throughout other more serious provisions as well. This is a very high-risk safety prosecution that could come up. It's one the regulator would jump at now because of its expanded ambit into the discrimination-style breach that exists. But do you think it would meet the threshold for reckless endangerment? No, I don't think it would. Just huge breach. Yeah, right? huge breach. Yeah. The last one may seem like an odd question. Would the result be different in other states and territories in respect of safety? Actually, it would be because you'd have trouble proving direct liability against the other two entities, but against in Victoria, okay, because it's employer-based, whereas a PCBU test would capture Genie's business, which is naval gazes, because they were a loose affiliation and yeah. therefore would attract target the officers in that who could be really at risk. So the answer is in Victoria, naval gazers would have a third-party risk but not a primary risk. But in every other state and territory, because they're a PCBU with the University of Milan, both of them would have the primary risk and therefore the risk of penalty to naval gazers and their officers is significantly higher. That was a complex case. Wasn't yeah, it? it was. You made it very difficult. <laughs> yeah, it was 11 o'clock. What can I say? What I can say is that's the end of the day. Thank thanks, Nana. Thank yeah, you don't forget, you. we need thumbs up. Yeah. And thanks for staying with us because it's a complex day. Thank you. Cheers. Bye bye. bye.